Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week, it's a real treat. With Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange back in UK cinemas, I got to fulfil a lifetime's ambition and spend time with Malcolm McDowell. I've taught you much, my little droogies. Now, tell me what you had in mind, Georgie boy. So, Malcolm, uh, Clockwork Orange back in cinemas after all this time. I have to ask you first, when was the last time you saw it? I saw it in Cannes at a midnight screening on the 40th anniversary with all the um, Warner Brothers top brass sitting there watching it. And um, I hadn't seen it for, I think, 30 years or something. And I watched it. And I did turn to the guy next to me, who was the head of Warner Brothers, and I said, it could do with a cut, don't you think? (laughs) Take 10 minutes out of this film. (laughs) He laughed. (laughs) I mean, it was a joke, obviously, but... um, And then they had this big extravagant party, you know, did the Carova milk bar and the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the French, you know, it was just... It was fun. And did did you think it still had the impact that it had back in 1971? Absolutely not. No, no, no. It, it, the, the film, in my view, it has longevity because it, it's a mixture of many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it first came out, it was just the look was so unique. There'd never been a film that looked anything like this. Yeah. But it's actually only 20 minutes of the film. The rest of it is... Uh, the retribution, you know, it's, it's, I'm in a, just a, a blue dark suit. Um, but that 20 or 30 minutes at the beginning um, was so extraordinary and so uh, all the, um, the press and, and uh, you know, was just, uh, it was completely focused on the violence. Yeah. And, and, and I was very bewildered by this because... Um, what, you mean that they weren't focusing on the Ludovico technique, they were focusing on the stuff before it? No, because, you know, I've, I really honestly thought we made a black comedy. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I couldn't see why people were taking all this so seriously, you know. It's like, good God, it's not a naturalistic performance. And, you know, I, I was a collaborator with Stanley, where the, you know, um, it wasn't just an actor for hire. Uh, you know, uh, I was spent months with him before. Uh, I've told this story, but you know, the, um, he said, I said to him, "Well, you know, what are, what am I going to wear?" And he goes, "I don't know. What have you got?" 
I mean, what have I got? Stanley, it's supposed to be futuristic. I said, well, what I do have is my cricket gear in the car. And he goes, get it. Oh, put it on. What's this? <clears throat> I said, well, that, that's the cricket protector. You know. He goes, wear it on the outside. And that's how the, um, the whole white thing, the look of the gang, yeah. came into being. I then found this yard of eyelash at Bieber, showed it to him. He goes, great, put it on. I went, I don't know how to put these things. So I cut a chunk off, put it on. He photographed everything, yeah. stills, and called me the next day and said, this is, it's so great with just one eyelash because you look at your face and you can see there's something odd, but you're mm -hmm. not quite sure what it is. Yeah. And it's sort of sinister. And he goes, I, I will go with one. And that's the way he was. You know, he'd photograph everything, look at it. Um, he was very meticulous that way. Did, but you have, did you have a good relationship with him? Because Fantastic, yeah. He only got to see the film to know that it was an extraordinary relationship, really. One thing I could never stand was to see a filthy, dirty old drunkie howling away at the filthy songs of his fathers and going blurp, blurp in between as it might be a filthy old orchestra in his stinking, rotten guts. I could never stand to see anyone like that, whatever his age might be, but more especially when he was real old like this one was. And it was shot fairly quickly for him, wasn't it? For him, I think, I don't know how many, I think it was eight or nine months shoot. Yeah. Which is insane. You could make Lawrence of Arabia in that time. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, not really. I think they took two years to shoot that. But um, no, it was uh, a long time. There was never any hurry. Yeah. We sat on a set without turning the camera for five days. And that was not unusual. I mean, it was, you know, and then and he put a, a marquee in the garden of this house where the crew was sent to drink their cups of tea while we kind of tried to work out what right. we were going to do. And the thing was, he didn't really know, you know, and neither did I. We had to find it. So you were finding your way actually during the yes, shoot of the film. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's the strength of it. Because in a way, there's a great spontaneity. And, you know, he's a brilliant. When I suddenly started singing, singing in the rain, and as a joke, yeah. whacking her on the beat, uh, he started laughing so hard, he grabbed hold of me, threw him in his car. We drove back to his house. He bought the rights to Singing in the Rain. We came back and took a week to shoot it. Yeah. But he knew he had it. Yes? Who is it? Excuse me, missus. Can you please help? There's been a terrible accident. My friend's in the middle of the road, bleeding to death. Can I please use your telephone for an ambulance? I'm sorry, but we don't have a telephone. You'll have to go somewhere else. But, Mrs. It's a matter of life and death. Who is it, dear? There's a young man here. He says there's been an accident. He wants to use the telephone. Well, I suppose you'd better let him in. Well, wait a minute, will you? I'm sorry, but we don't usually let strangers in. And <laughs> Is it true that Gene Kelly 
took against it. There was a story that later on at Oscar yeah. or something. Oh, yeah. No, a year later, when I, I was invited to go to um, L.A. to meet, you know, the people at Warner's and all that. And so my uh, Warner Brothers minder said, hey, Malcolm, you know, there's a, a, a party in, in the flats of Beverly Hills. All a lot of great movie stars are going to yeah. be there. Do you want to go? And I went, hey, that's why I'm here. I'm <laughs> dying to meet my heroes. Yes, please. And, <clears throat> you know, there was Paulette Goddard and... I don't know, the swimmer, what was her name? Um, Esther Williams. <clears throat> she was there. And I was completely starstruck. And then he said, hey, Gene's here. Do you want to meet him? And I went, Gene Kelly, yes, please. And he had his back to me, and the minder tapped him on the shoulder, and he turned around. He went, Gene, I'd like to introduce you to Malcolm McDowell. And he just looked at me like I was a turd under a rock. <laughs> And he turned and just walked away. <laughs> and the minder said, I do apologize. I said, hey. I said, please don't apologize. Are you kidding? I understand totally. I, I took his moment and, and completely rejigged it. And he's, he's really pissed off. Yeah. Now, I told this story 40 years later at the Academy. And this lady came up to me afterwards. This is a few years ago. Yeah. So. And she said, I'm Jean's widow. And Malcolm, he wasn't pissed off with you. I said, well, what was it? He, she goes, he was really pissed at Stanley. And I went, why? Because Stanley hadn't paid him. <laughs> <laughs> I went, well, that makes total sense. Do you think that, because okay, when Clockwork Orange came out, I remember it being square-walled into the West End, and mm -hmm. it was the film that everyone was talking about. It was also one of the X films that you actually couldn't get in to see if you weren't old enough. And so I thought, you know, because they, they, they were quite serious about it. And then after Stanley had it removed from uh, circulation, mm -hmm. there was a whole generation of us were desperate to see it and couldn't. And somebody said, well, you go to Paris. You can go and see it in Paris. Yeah, there used to be flights. Yeah, so. and we did. We went to Paris to see yeah. it. Yeah. Do you think that that, because, you know, I know that the story was that it was banned, but it wasn't. It was that Stanley had removed exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Do you think that that has helped its reputation or damaged its reputation? The fact that for such a long time, right up until Stanley's death, it wasn't available in the UK? I think it gave it, in, in the UK only, by the way, it wasn't Yeah, no, everywhere else it was fine, yeah. Uh, I think it gave it a certain mystique. Not by design, by the way. Um, it was just, you know, he was advised to withdraw it. Yeah. And he did, because he felt threatened, and Stanley was paranoid, you know. Totally paranoid, it's yeah. obvious. I mean, he had to be in control of everything. I remember, because I, I went to Moscow and they wanted to show the film there in a retrospective and he wouldn't release it. And I thought, after all that, wow. I was really annoyed, but, you know, I could understand, um, of course I understand why he, he did that. You know, he did withdraw the film, but you know, after, 30 years or something. And as soon as he died, of course, the family. Yeah, no, sure. But was there not out. a part of you that thought, you know, because it's such a great performance, was there not a part of you just thought it would be great if it was actually able to be shown? You know what? I honestly didn't take it personally. Okay. I, I um, you know, I worked with this great man. I was very lucky to work 
with some great directors. You know, Lindsay Anderson is up there with Stanley yeah. Kubrick, certainly, um, in a very different way, but uh, certainly a very great director. And um, Well, can we talk a little bit about Oh, Lucky Man? Yes, I'd love to. So, I mean, Oh, Lucky Man is such a, a, a brilliant piece of work, pro arguably greatest soundtrack album of all time. I agree. And, uh, and of course, you know, your collaboration with the, the story and the screenplay. Yeah, so, yeah. so how autobiographical <clears throat> is that story? Well, I mean, it really isn't. But yes, I was a coffee salesman, you know, for 10 minutes. Okay. And um, but, but waiting to go to an acting job, you know, in the theatre, in repertory theatre. And I wanted to make a comedy uh, uh, about this. And, you know, I wanted to work with Lindsay. That was it. And mm. I knew that he wouldn't accept scripts. I'd seen him. You know, Hollywood was sending in these scripts. He'd just throw them in the trash. And I go, my God, that's, you know, to start with, you know, that girl from Rosemary's Baby. He went to meet her and, and he goes, I don't think I really want to do that. What do you think? <laughs> I went, well, you want to be a Hollywood director like John Schlesinger. Oh, he's sold out. I don't want to be like him, for God's sake. Are you kidding? I mean, I've, I used to tease him a lot, you know, about things like that, because he was very jealous of John. Yeah. He was jealous of his success in Hollywood and the way he managed to kind of tiptoe his way through. Okay. And where Lindsay couldn't. Lindsay wouldn't. He, he just wasn't in his being yeah. to kind of sell out. And, you know, um, so when we did If, I, I was desperate to work with him again because I, and I loved him as a person yeah he was the most riveting amusing and frustrating I had the most incredible fights with him but um, I'd always have to pick up the phone and I would always have to apologize <laughs> he would never apologize and um, but it, the the friendship was worth it and yeah. I just thought well what the hell what do I care he's some there's this man, he's this Oxford Don, you know, he's, he taught me everything I knew about the film industry, really. He taught me how to act on film. Yeah. Because I didn't know, it was just literally, I just sort of, um, when I did If, I just sort of did it, you know, and... Um, but the str I mean, the strange thing is, because If is the one that's kind of gone down in history, but for, um, Lucky Man was always the more important film for me, partly because when I first saw it, yeah. I knew nothing about it at all. And it is one of those narratives mm -hmm. that you, you, where's this going? And it, I, I thought it was a really, an, a, a really profound experience. Mark, so I'm, I'm so glad you said that, because it's the, the sort of a masterpiece that has not been recognized. And, and I, it is an amazing film. Uh, we were roundly attacked when it opened for attacked being what? self-indulgent, whatever. I mean, it, it's stunning now when you think of that. Um, so basically, I gave him 40 pages. And I'll never forget, he lived in Greencroft Gardens, West Hampstead. And I went up there, and it had a, like a bed-sitting room. And I was sitting on the, the armchair when I gave him it. Yeah. And he looked, it was called Coffee Man. Right. right? <clears throat> he looked at it, you know, and the glasses went up, the glasses came down. <laughs> One glass went up and he'd say, is this supposed to be funny? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, it is a comedy. It is funny, of course, it's northern humor. You're not from the north, you wouldn't <laughs> know. You're from the south and they don't have any humor at all. So, uh, 
he'd go, actually, I'm a Scott, old boy. I mean, oh, sorry, yes, of course, <laughs> of course. So uh, he read it, and he put it down. He came over and he said, well, Malcolm, it's not very good, is it? And I said, Lindsay, it is good. It is the kernel of something really interesting. Yeah. And it's going to be your next film. And he just looked up and went, then you'd better call David Sherwin, <laughs> who had written If, who I then gave the same 40 pages to. David read it, <clears throat> and he came, he was in the bedroom reading it in my little flat yeah. in Elm Park Gardens. He came in and said, this is bloody fantastic. I want to work on this. Let's do it. And that was the kernel of um, yeah. Oh Lucky Man. Now smile. I beg your pardon? Smile. Why? Just do it. I'm afraid I can't smile without a reason. Smile. What's that to smile about? Just do it. Why? Don't ask why. What's that to smile about? you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's a, it's a wonderful, as I said, the soundtrack album as well is fantastic. And funnily enough, I was going through my vinyl collection and I have the, the vinyl of the Clockwork Orange soundtrack, mm -hmm. which, you know, Wendy Carlos's stuff is so extraordinary. Mm -hmm. But the, the Alan Price stuff for Lucky Man is just is just Alan Price did one of the most incredible scores to the film, to the script. Yeah. I mean, he was writing the music to the script, which makes it very unique. And, you know, he wasn't even nominated. I mean, where is there a better film score? Yeah. Where is it? Yeah. I'd like to see it. Yeah, but as we all know, I mean, That's uh, Oscars, and, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it is nonsense. Um, I know. Can you tell me something about the, uh, the Stanley Kubrick uh, exhibition at the Design Museum? I think it's uh, really, uh, 
it got here in London rather late. I think they couldn't find a venue. You know, it's been all over the world. Yeah. And the last time I saw it was in at LACMA in LA, the museum there. It's really, um, you know, a, a beautiful exhibition, you know, that has an insight into the workings of this sort of great man. Now, Stanley was, you know, a very great director. There's no question about it. You could argue whether he was the best. I don't know. But um, I would say, from my perspective, he's uh, one of the very best because he made masterpieces in pretty much every, every genre. genre. And nobody has done that. Nobody. Not even John Ford, who I considered on a level above everyone. Yeah. But... You know, Stanley, you know, he, I mean, just for 2001, if that had been the only film he'd made, he would have gone down in the history of cinema as one yeah. of the greatest. Because that is, I mean, it just moved film, uh, it sort of jumped a millennium. Yeah. Not only science fiction movies, you know, before that it was Flash Gordon cardboard sets. Yeah. And Stanley brought this whole psychological thing and, physiological thing and into it and made the science fiction movie about, you know, the, the cosmos and the, making us think huge things. And, and when you go to the exhibition, do you get a sense of that? Do you get you a get sense, a sense of, of that? Through? You get a sense of him. The, he worked on Napoleon. You get a sense of yeah. that. You see all his writings, his scripts, his this, his that, you know, all the stuff from the archives, and he kept everything. So yeah. I think, honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to, if you're yeah. interested in film. Yeah, I'm going down there to do a podcast from it, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Um, on the subject of, uh, you know, masterpieces, I have to ask you, I, for years, was convinced that there was a masterpiece in Caligula somewhere. <laughs> Me too. And <laughs> it's, it's really bizarre because <clears throat> I do think, I mean, all the stuff that happened with Guccione and all the reshot stuff. Yeah, and everything, yeah. Somewhere in the middle of that film, mm -hmm. there is a great film, isn't there? I think there may be. I mean, uh, listen, you know, I had a go at it. I, w I went into the editing room for a bit, but... Um, so you had a go at d doing one of Well, those? I had a go, because, be, uh, you know, just because I tried to get, you know, in the middle and help the huge chasm that had appeared for the, from the director, Tinto, Tinto Brass, and the producers in New York. And, and by the way, Guccione was an absolute narcissist, like somebody else we know over there. <laughs> Um, <laughs> sort of very similar, actually, um, <laughs> come to think of it. Um, and there is some wonderful sequences. Yeah. And, but, you know, Gorvidal was really basically, at this point, going through... He was a total drunk, and he called me at 3, 4 in the morning, complaining. I said, Gore, Christ, I've got to be up at 6 to do this shit that you wrote. I mean, seriously, you know, thanks a lot. He goes, well, I'm taking my name off it. You know, I went, good. I wish I could take mine off it. <laughs> Too late, you know. Um, you know, I just, look, I'm a professional actor. I did my best. I have existed from the morning of the world, and I shall exist until the last star falls from the night. Although I have taken the form of Caius Caligula, I am all men as I am no man, and therefore I am a god. 
I think you do a great job in it. I mean, I and believe me, I've seen Caligula a lot of times in a lot of different versions because yeah. I, I made the the trek up to the Prince Charles, which was showing the four-hour version oh without you know when oh. I was a school kid, and, yeah. and much the same as Clockwork Orange. It was a film that we'd heard about, yeah. but actually getting to see it was a, such a big deal. A lot of my films are like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. There are, I'm, I'm proud of it. I, I mean, look, I, I, when it came out, I, I was really pissed off because Guccione had then reshot yeah. blatant porno sequences, mm -hmm. of, you know, and just sort of put him in. And there was a close-up of me, I know, I was actually looking at my pet hawk, and instead of me, so the close-up of me looking at the hawk kind of in an interested way, he, he, instead of the hawk, the cutaway is not a hawk, two lesbians for 10 minutes and then comes back to me looking quizzical you know <laughs> it's like well thanks a lot you know <laughs> so I, I was really uh very upset by all that did but you get on well with Tinto Brass yeah I did because Helen Mirren always talks fantastically about, about what a what a top fellow he is well you know Helen's nuts I mean <laughs> I love her but she's nuts um yeah she she loved it I mean, so did John Gielgud. Yeah, My yeah. God, I saw John in New York on Third Avenue, and he goes, "Oh well, I've seen the film. Frightfully good." <laughs> I said, How, well, "He said I've seen it three times, and I paid twice." <laughs> I mean, good God, John! Oh, frightfully good. Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> he loved it. Then somebody told him, "You better not say that. It's a porno movie." Well, he once he, he, he once described it in an interview. He said, "This is my first pornographic feature." Yeah, but well, he was quite proud. Of let it. me tell you, he <laughs> loved it, and he stayed with me in Rome. It was, ah, uh, it was absolutely magical to have this, you know, wonderful man. I loved him. Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, the, you said that there's a number of your films have been in that sort of area. Um, mm. Can I ask you about Evelenko? Oh, yeah. I so, love that. Yeah. Film. So I had... Uh, Have you ever seen it? Yes, of course. I wrote oh, a piece wow. for Sight and Sound about it. Um, that was a, an extraordinary piece of work. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, look, that was amazing. We shot it in Kiev before the whole place imploded, before the Russians invaded. And it was really um, very primitive. It, it was the right place to shoot it because it was like the 50s or 40s in um, communist Russia, you yeah. know, the Soviet Union. And I, I, I thought it was an amazing piece. And to be honest with you, this friend of mine wrote it. And we had a house in Italy to get next door. And he'd come and I, I'm the one who kind of, you know, I encouraged him to, to write the script because I said, look, you've got to direct this, David. You, can't you can't you piss or get off the pot yeah do it or for, he was a critic oh right i didn't know that okay. yeah he's a, a wonderful guy david grieco and so i come out the next year with my kids you know and all our kids swam and they all got on and he handed me the script and said let's read it on the terrace so i read this thing and i go jesus David, uh, it's very dark. It's a, it's a piece, isn't it? Look, just one word of advice: the rape of this child shouldn't happen in the first reel. <laughs> I mean, there's nowhere to go, you know. And he goes, okay. And then next year I came, and it was the same thing. So I figured, well, 
Yeah, I, I mean, told I... him, and um, and he wants it. Then I got a call, Mark, we got the money. I didn't think he'd ever get the film made. I remember seeing it and being genuinely shocked, not in a, in a good way, but oh, genuinely yeah. surprised. I, I, I thought, okay, there's nothing, and I, I thought it was genuinely shocking. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I kind of, I admired the fact that you would, that you were going for it. Oh my God! I, well, to be honest, uh, you know, um, my wife was pregnant. And um, I remember being, uh, getting, starting ready to pack to go to fly to Kiev, you know, via Frankfurt or whatever it was, and just thinking, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> and I didn't know how to play the part. I had no idea. And thank God, it's the only time I've ever really done a sort of Olivier putty nose and, and did a walk and did a, you know, and had an external character. Physic a physicality yeah. so that at, at night I could just take it off and emotionally I, I, I wasn't involved. But you're not, all the way through your career, you're not scared of roles. I mean, it is no. interesting, like, you know, <clears throat> Clock Clockwork Orange, I think, still has an extraordinary impact. Mm. And the thing that's defined your work is that you're not frightened of doing stuff that will challenge or alarm or, you know, there's no point at which you've sort of settled into, okay, well, I don't... Now, I don't think that was the thing about Evelenko was it was at that point in your career, it was still quite a brave thing to do something that was yeah. that far out there. Oh, and, and doing a naked scene with a, an Adonis, um, Martin Shokash, you know, who's worked out, <laughs> and uh, he's got a, a naked... I said, Jesus, couldn't I wear my briefs or something? I got <laughs> to be on screen with him, and he's in the gym 24-7. They went, no, that's the whole point. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, well, look, there's no point in being an actor if you're going to play it safe. Once upon a time, there was a little girl just like you, with hair just like yours, and eyes just like yours. And she followed a cloud and learned how to fly. And after a while, since no one had seen her, well, Everyone thought that the girl was dead. So, they had a funeral. And the girl watched her own funeral from way, way up there in the sky. And she saw that no one was crying. And then she knew her mummy and daddy didn't really love her. So she stayed up in the sky and never came down again. Is that the end? Yes. We're here to push the boundaries to do things that we're not comfortable in. Okay. Because otherwise, you may as well just phone it in. There's no point. Um, you know, I, I find most of the parts I'm offered, you know, like sleepwalking through it. Right. You know, because it's hard to get challenged, you know. Listen, I've done most things. And I'm at a point now that I've pretty much done everything. But... So that if something like Evilenko comes up, you know, I mean, to be honest, it, what's really wonderful about getting into older age is that, um, you know, you, uh, you have the confidence just to let it happen. Yeah. And it will happen. It will happen. 
and you can honestly just find it as you go. And that is the most exciting thing about the work. If you can do that, like Stanley, let me do it, you know, um, doing the singing and the rain sequence, the, you know, all that stuff was all yeah, yeah. improv. I mean, and, you know, it, it, when that happens, you know there's a shift. You know that it's momentous yeah. in the film because it just you just know you know and it and, and film is about movement mm. so you know that kind of movement is um huge and it is as i was saying alex you can be instrumental in changing the public's verdict do you understand alex do i make myself clear As an unmudded lake, Fred. As clear as an azure sky of deepest summer. You can rely on me, Fred. Good. Good, boy. There are so many moments <clears throat> in, in Clockwork Orange that are iconic. I don't know whether you saw, but there was a, a thing that got tweeted, which was a picture of, um, uh, of Alex looking weirdly like Trump. And the the and the the caption was it wasn't me, sir. I was led I was led astray by the by the by the you know the was it I, I was it wasn't me. I was led astray by the by the treachery of others. Oh, and yeah. it was a picture of that right. next to Trump. There are so many things in Clockwork Orange that have passed into popular parlance. I remember yeah. doing an, an introduction to uh, something to do with David Bowie, and of course Bowie's costume, oh, yeah. as you know, had been influenced by it. Yeah. And all the time that I was at Radio One, every other pop band would come along would take something from it. They would I take, know. you know. Yeah. Why do you think it, it passed into the iconography like that? I think that, you know, the, 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 just the look of it and the sound of it was yeah. so, so way ahead of its time, you know. And this is, by the way, Burgess, not just Stanley, yeah, yeah. not just me. I mean, this is Anthony Burgess who wrote the most extraordinary book. And, you know, when I first read the book, I went, there's no way you can make this into a movie. I, I, I mean, that's Stanley's brilliance. He saw a way through it, you know, quite broad strokes. And um, without spending really any money, he managed to create a kind of extraordinary world. And, uh, you know, the only set they built was the Corova Milk Bar. Yeah. And all the rest is just well, it's Thamesmead in places, isn't it? I mean, we went Thames to Thamesmead. Yeah. I'm astonished it still looks exactly the same. God, amazing. I mean, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, uh, one apparently of they've refurbished it, so... It still looks like Clockwork Orange. One of my favourite <laughs> moments in that film is when the four of you are walking down by the water mm. and it goes into slow motion and just as you pull, there's, and there's like a you little... Know, I love that scene. Well, that is pure Stanley. Because I, I said to him, this Stanley, I mean, this is really boring. He goes, it's a good shot. It's a good shot. And I was like, well, I mean, what am I supposed to do? He goes, listen, the voiceover says it. And it's, the voiceover is something like, then a radio was on and oh, my brothers, it was playing lovely, lovely Ludwig van. And, you know, you get into that, then you see it. And, of course, I didn't know that it was in slow motion yeah. and the whole thing with the knife. I thought it was so corny. 
But it works. Yeah. I mean, hey, sometimes corny's good. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you, is it true that you got um, death threats from Star Trek fans for killing Captain Kirk? Yes, I'm proud to that say. That actually happened. <laughs> yeah. They should have been thrilled I got rid of old fatty. But, oh, no. I, he was... He's a, he was a lot of fun, actually. He was a good sport. Well, he was once asked, have you got a message for Star Trek fans? He said, yeah, get a life. I know. Get a life. Well, I kind of agree with him there because they're nuts, you know. I mean, they... But it is actually a pretty good show. Yeah. It, it's a good moral... They're good moral tales. And, and it, the original thing is actually pretty well written, even though it's real cheesy, you know, with all the, the cardboard sets and all that. But... If it hadn't have been for him, William, and for Leonard, that, uh, that whole thing would have died right there. Mm. But those two are really quite something, terrific actors. And Leonard especially, I think, he was such a gentleman too, a very nice man. And then, you know, Patrick comes along. And I remember I was doing a play at the Mark Taper downtown LA, and the stage doorman says, uh, well, there's a Patrick Stewart to see you. And I went, what? What's he doing here? He came around. I went, what the hell are you doing here? He goes, oh, darling, doing um, a little thing, you know, this little uh, science fiction. I went, what? He goes, Star Trek. I went, oh, for fuck's sake. You know, are you kidding me? Oh, that old hackney <laughs> bullshit. I went, you're kidding. He goes, no, no, I think it's going to be my pension. I went, oh, good luck. And, of course, he was more than right. <laughs> and um, God bless him. Good luck to him. And, and he really was fantastic. And the remake was way better than the original yeah. one. And, um, you know, the rest is history. Is but, you, but there is a part of your history which is that you are the man that killed, killed Captain Kirk. Kirk. And, you know, it's been worth millions to me. <laughs> I say thank you very much. And bring on the other one. I'll do him too. <laughs> but you can imagine being on a mountaintop, an hour's drive out of uh, Vegas, with Patrick Stewart on one side and William Shatner on the other. And they both actually at one point had hold one arm and one arm. And, I, and they're doing a deck and I suddenly went, cut! I went, oh my God! If your fans could see you now, you look like a big girl's blouse. Uh, and he goes, well, what, what is a big girl's blouse? <laughs> it was hilarious. Oh, my God, we had so much fun. Actually, I am familiar with history, Captain. And if I'm not too much mistaken, you're dead. Do you see any of Alex in the character in, in Gangster Number One, which I thought was again a really sort of terrific piece of work? It, it, I think it's partly to do with the fact that it's a, this kind of narrated story. But do you see yeah, any no. of Alex in that? No. no. Did you like Gangster Number One? I loved it. Yeah. And Bettany was fabulous. Yeah. Uh, well, that was the part that them, broke him, wasn't it? I mean, huh? that was the part that was his yeah. big break. Yes. He's a very, very good actor, and I think underused still. But he's, uh, he was so good in that. And, you know, I, I love doing that film, actually. But um, uh, listen, except for the fact, of course, it's my face. And I'm not the kind of actor that does a lot of putty. Although I must say, now with these new makeups, um, I'm all for it. Tell me about new makeups. Oh, sir. my God. Well, Gary started it with uh, Churchill. Oh, right, okay. 
and I've just done this thing and I played Rupert Murdoch and they just put a thing, a chin thing, and it only took 40 minutes. And it's so shockingly different. And um, John Lithgow played uh, Roger Ailes with a fat suit, the jowls. Yeah. How was it to play Murdoch? Fabulous. It's such a Shakespearean character, you know, with the sons and oh my God. I could do a one-man show about him. <laughs> I mean, it's really amazing. You know, he's, he's quite something, actually. I mean, Have I you met am, him? Huh? Have you met him? No, I don't really want to, really. <laughs> but I don't have to meet him. But I did do his Australian accent, you know, and tried to just match a little. You know, I, I, uh, I mean, everybody was doing the characters they were playing. Megan Kelly was played by... Um, Theron, you know, Charlie. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nicole Kidman was playing the other one. And then, and then, oh, Margot Robbie. Wow, what an actress she is. So when, when will so we see this? I think Christmas. And um, it's called? I don't know. There's a title, un, 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 I don't know what it is. And directed by? They said the title is, is Lucite Desk. Lucite Desk. This is almost as bad as the hotel I'm staying in, which is called Sea Containers. <laughs> yes, that's right. <clears throat> it's a very nice hotel, incidentally. But I got oh, it's a lovely hotel. Right. But who came up with the name should be shot. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, um, yes, I'm, I, somebody tweeted me and said, are you staying in a bed or a hammock? <laughs> <laughs> so, Malcolm, you, you, I mean, the... You know, you've lost none of the, the, the energy and the passion for the work. And as I said, I, I think seeing things like Evelyn Cohen, just being impressed by the fact that you were still willing to, you know, to push boundaries. Do, oh, you, yeah. still, you, do you still have the same enthusiasm for it that you do? Because one of the things about you is you're a fabulous raconteur. And I saw the, you know, the documentary in which was you talking. But right. you do still take the work seriously, oh, don't God. you? You're looking for mm. challenges. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know... Uh, I just love to work. I love it. I love the work. To me, it's a great privilege to be an actor. I can't even believe they're still paying me. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I, I mean this truthfully. I sit there sometimes, wherever it is, and I look around, there's like a hundred people and the this, the that, and, and I go, this circus is, it's so much fun, you know, and then getting into these characters and I tell you, I've been doing for the last eight years a lot of television. Mm. And uh, there's some great writing on television. You know, I did this series on Amazon ab about a classical uh, orchestra. I've never had so much fun. And I, I just admire musicians so much. Whatever, you know, rock or whatever it is, I don't care. But to be on a, to be conducting you know, 60-piece orchestra and everyone in unison. The, the charge it gives you, it, it's like shocking the amount of adrenaline. Do you dance? No. It's funny, though. Two people have asked me that. One was Stanley, and I came up with Singing in the Rain. Yeah. And one was Bob Altman, who goes, Hey, kid, can you dance? And I went, Hell no. And he goes, well, that's good, because you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> and he, I played the artistic director of a ballet. Yeah. But it was, that's two important things in my life, in my career, because I love working for Bob. 
Bob Altman was one of the great, great American storytellers. Yeah. I mean, really, if you want to find out what America was like in the 70s, 80s, 90s, to go look at Bob Altman's movies. Do you They're amazing. Do you remember how the how the player cameo happened? Did you did yeah. you ad was it written or did you ad lib it? No, I ad lib I lived that thing, and and stupidly I actually said that to this, uh, the head of a studio came up to me and I went, hey, look, I heard you were, you know, you were you, you were talking shit about me behind my back. I go, why don't you do it to my face? And the guy looked at me like, and took off and I thought, yeah, screw him. Then he went on to head up every major studio. He was already <laughs> the head of Universal, he went on to Paramount, and I never worked with any of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final question. Is it true that Stanley stiffed you for points on Clockwork Orange? Because I read an interview with you recently in which you yes. suggested, so that actually happened? Yes. Well, why, do you think I'd lie? No, I just think, I mean, it just seems like such a strangely Petty well, thing to do. Well, that was the other side of it. You know, I mean, I mean um, you know, it's, it's strange. I, I can't even tell you why he would do that, and that's why I never spoke to him again. So did you, you never spoke to him no. after Clockwork Orange? No, no. And I must say, to be honest, I regret it. I think um, I was stupid. I was... Um, pig-headed, I, I really could have picked up the phone and said, Stan, come on, okay, I'm coming over, or something. Because what I went through with him, I never went through with anyone, yeah. not even Lindsay. And I'll tell you, I could never have done that performance for Lindsay, because he would have hated it. Right. He did not want that from me. Lindsay wanted something else. And, and that's why, in a way, it was so incredible to do just to go with it for Stanley was like this amazing journey. And you know, and, and when I said to him, Stanley, give me some ideas, what, what do you want? And he goes, that's why I hired you. And walked away. I'm going, I was a young kid, you know, I'm going, fuck, are you kidding? I said, hey, there's a call sheet here that goes, S. Kubrick, director, how about some direction? He just, laughed. And then I realized, driving home, I went, this man has just given me the greatest gift of all. And the gift is, do it. Yeah. Show me. And, and I remember, you know, I'd show him a few things, and he'd pick. And, and I said, that's why you like Peter Sellers, isn't it? Because he had 40 different characters <laughs> he'd come. And, and then you'd cast him in seven of them, yeah, and he'd yeah. end up playing seven parts. Yeah, Malcolm, uh, I I, th I think the film still stands up after all this time. I, I I've been a fan of yours for such a long time. This is the first time I've met you. It has been an absolute pleasure. You have been every bit as thrilling to speak to as I had hoped. So thanks for coming on the podcast, and pleasure. I hope I'll pass cross again in the future. I hope so, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was my chat with Malcolm McDowell. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Clockwork Orange is back in UK cinemas at the moment. And in a coming episode, I'll be going to the Design Museum to go round that Kubrick exhibition, which sounds terrific. Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.